At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. You're listening to From the Pink Seats Podcast of the State of Louisville Podcast Network. Now, here's your host, Jacob Lane, Matt McGavin, and Vince Lococo. If you've been listening to the show, you know that the transfer portal is the primary topic of discussion over the last couple of weeks and will continue to be for weeks coming. Uh, but uh, here on From the Pink Seats podcast, we, we leave no stone unturned. We can't move on and close the book, as one Matt McGavick says, until we go back and we read the book, we rehash the book, we study the book, we take cliff notes on the book, we present to you what those findings of the book are, and ultimately that is what we are here to do. If you've been listening to the show for the last four years, you know this is the, the season in review series where we dive into the offense, the defense, a 30,000-foot view. We might even talk a little bit of special teams on this podcast. Wow. Wow. That's what we're going to do. And while everyone is diving into the portal and diving into the player acquisitions and what 2024 beholds, we got plenty of time to do that. The offseason is going nowhere. It is the longest offseason in sports is college football. So in the meantime, sit back, pour up your favorite Mr. and Mrs. Bourbon or head over to Frankfurt Avenue Liquors and Wine and make sure you tune in to what is going to be a great series over the next couple of weeks. Guys, we've got former players from last year's teams that will join us to walk through what they experienced firsthand. We might have some coaches join us and talk through what they experienced firsthand. Of course, you're going to get myself, Jacob Lane, Matt McGavick, and Vincent LaCoco talking about what we saw throughout the season, but we've got to tell the story of what 2023 was before we can move on to 2024. And that is what we are here to do tonight. We will do so with our good friend, Keith Wynn, my next door neighbor who guys, I tell you this all the time. I don't see Keith. <laughs> we wave across the street. And that's about the extent of what we do until we get here. And then it's like riding a bike. We pick up where we left off last time and we nerd out over some football. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We'll get offense and defense and we'll dive into all of that over the coming weeks. But fellas, tonight is all about taking things from a very holistic approach, a very 30,000 foot view, as they say. And really looking at the storylines, the highs and lows, some of the moments of the year that defined and really set up what we're going to talk about. Um, first of all, we have to pour one out. Okay, guys. Um, RIP. Because our friends who have powered this episode for the last four years have se- have recently deceased. And that is Football uh, Outsiders, Matt. They no longer exist. We can no longer pull the football outsider stats. <laughs> so we must pour Hello. one out for our friends, but we will have some great data. Uh, Matt will bring Matt's stats out over the coming weeks. There's a lot of stuff, guys. I I know 
we've moved ahead and we've moved on. It feels like college football was a century ago. But when we look back at this season, I think we're going to see there's a way to overachieve and yet still be a little bit hungry for more. And I think that that's going to be where we ultimately land. I mean, if if you're sitting back as a Louisville fan and like are satisfied with how the year went, then I mean, there's something wrong with you. You should not be satisfied with losing the ACC championship. You should not be satisfied with not making the playoffs, whether it's four teams or 12 teams. I mean, that's your end goal every year. You don't, I mean, you don't play to, I want to be the number four team in the ACC and make the Music City Bowl and go to Nashville and have a good time. That's not your that's not your deal. So I think every every Louisville fan should be pissed off. But to your point, Jacob should be also you know relishing what <laughs> we did do this year. Yeah, it, it's it, it's nice to talk this through with Keith. You you always you love that. You love to eh, because there's just so much detail, so many things that you don't think of that play into the season and how they kind of progressed. Um, and so I'm excited to dive into the details here. I think there's a lot that we're going to get into that uh, will help us understand Louisville football even that much better and make us even more equipped and prepared for 2024, which could be the biggest year yet. So we shall see. Uh, and until then, we will continue to churn out the content from the Pink Seats podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your shows from. We are brought to you by the fine folks at Frankfurt Avenue Liquors and Wine, 2115 Frankfurt Avenue, right next to the Manhattan Project. They are a full bar and a full package goods store. You can go in, get your bottles, get your wine, get your whiskeys, get your get your vodkas, get your beer, get whatever you need, take it home. But you can also enjoy a fine cocktail from their award-winning mixologist at the bar. Enjoy some nice music, a wonderful atmosphere. Um, do all of that there. And of course, we can't thank our friends at Kern's Corner enough for powering the state of Louisville podcast network home to four original shows. Can't thank them enough. The finest chili, the finest patty melt you will find in the city. Check them out over in the Highlands, Kern's Corner. Follow them on Facebook. Fellas, the offseason yeah. is here. You just made me laugh. Because whenever you said, uh, you know, master mixologist, I just pictured, you know, our fans showing up and you sitting behind the bar, like, yeah, it's just me, guys. It's just me. <laughs> no, man. Shout out to shout out to the the guys and gals over there at Frankfurt Avenue Liquors and Wine. Far more experience in in the liquor pouring than I. But we've got a great series. Pour up. Do whatever you need to do. Get prepared. We will bring Keith Wynn on, and we will get this party started. And hopefully, by the end of this, we are ready to run through that brick wall for the 2024 season, ladies and gentlemen. Let's jump right into it and waste no more time. The man of the hour, Keith Wynn, joins the program for the first time in a long time. We went like almost a whole season. It's like, I don't know if it's like the the world of of just the way that mystery works. We don't have Keith on all year, and Louisville has its best season of our podcast journey <laughs> here. I'm not sure how to equate that, but hey, it is what it is. We're just excited to have Keith here. Jokingly, uh, I tell Keith this all the time. I, I see him very rarely. He lives right across the street from me. And Keith will ne- will laugh at this when I say this, but I I typically find out what Keith's up through up to through his son when uh, his son plays with my daughter, same age, and he he says, "Hey, my dad's watching football today." I'm like, "That's great, love that." Tell Keith I say hello. But Keith, it's great to see you. Welcome in, man. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a while, man. Yeah, I hadn't really realized how long it's been until yeah, you sent me the message. I was like, man, it's. It's been honestly maybe springtime sometimes. So, you know, always happy to join. Always excited to talk football, man. Of course. And there is 
there's a lot to get into on this episode. As we mentioned in the intro there, I know the season is over. I know that we've moved on. The transfer portal, even as we record this episode, continues to spin and churn. And we're already so focused on 2024. But you cannot continue to write a book or write a book at all without chapters previous, unless you're starting at the beginning, right? And so before we can get to 2024, we've got to talk about 2023 holistically and what it looked like and how it happened and why it happened. And there's no better way to start this, Keith, than with you, because you were a man of the details when it comes to football, um, specifically with Louisville football. And gentlemen, we've talked about this all season. Every one of the topics tonight that we are going to cover was likely something that we talked about along the 13-week road that we went on this this season. Um, but now we can kind of put this bow on it, and it allows us to really learn from the past and prepare for the future. And so, fellas, I'm going to come hot right out of the gate here. When, it, when we're talking about this season and we're talking about what Louisville did from top to bottom, we know the 10-4 and 4 record. We know the 7-1 and 1 conference record. We know the first ever trip to the ACC championship we know about the schedule that everyone talked about all offseason leading into the year, the easiest ever, and how Louisville would dominate with that schedule. And if they didn't, it was a disappointment. And, and fellas, for the most part, that's what happened. Uh, there's a lot of webs. There's a lot of different ways we can go. And this will really kind of dictate how the show progresses and where we end up. And so, Keith, I want to start with you. Biggest storyline of this season for you now that the year is over and you look back, what is the number one thing that kind of stands out for this team, whether it be from a coaching standpoint, playing standpoint, results, whatever it was for you uh, as you sit here now so many days removed? You know, I'd have to say it's getting 10 wins without a big-time offense. I mean, Jeff Brum, you know, is a, is a big-time offensive coach. I think the, you know, obviously the talk is that he's going to come in and have a bunch of big plays and, and the offense is just going to hum along. And, you know, it, it obviously wasn't bad. I, I don't want to imply that at all, but it definitely, I don't think the offense was what was expected. And I think there was times where they struggled, um, whether it be games where they couldn't run the ball, uh, games where they just, they really, after the early part of the season, could not get any big plays in, in the passing game. Uh, but they still got to 10 wins. And I think that's a testament to, Honestly, Jeff Brown having positive things on his team that I don't think most people expected. You know, a really, really, really strong running game. Offensive line played really well, but the, but the run game was much better. I think anyone anticipated, and I think the defense was much better than anticipated as well. Uh, I think they they struggled late in the season, but, but overall the defense played much better than I think. Um, you know, I mean, at least from my own standpoint, I think they were much better than I expected based on what Purdue was able to do with the scheme, but also losing some of the players they lost um, after last season. You know, you got two NFL guys up front, uh, Trey Clark in the secondary, and you lost some guys to the portal as well. So, you know, I don't think anyone was thinking, hey, this defense is going to be able to kind of keep up with what they did in the, in the previous year. But I thought they played really well. And I think getting the 10 wins with doing things in a different way than what Brown has done before, uh, I think that's the biggest storyline for me. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, considering, you know, kind of where the projections were for Louisville overall and what we talked about all offseason with the acquisition of a guy like Jack Plummer, Jamari Thrash. Um, uh, but, you know, kudos to Vince. Vince talked about this all, all the time about how this was going to be hands down the least nerdiest running back class that he ever had or the nerdiest running back room. And I mean that <laughs> meaning the most talented – just most skillful group, right? He's going to walk in here day one and a guy like Jawar Jordan and Isaac Ariendo are going to be studs, right? Um, 
and, and it's really interesting to see how he leaned into that and how he learned to embrace that and use that as its biggest weapon. And ultimately, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on mine because you guys are here to listen to guys like Keith and Vince and Matt. But I think for me, the biggest storyline of the season is kind of combined into two things. And I, we'll get to the second part of it, I'm sure. But one of them being is the willingness to lean into the run game. I mean, that you don't win those games late in the season against Virginia and Miami and Virginia Tech without that run game. Isaac Garindo was like 11 touchdowns in five games or something stupid. Just, it was it was great to see because we had heard all year, it's going to be pass, 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 one guy, two guys, you know, tight end, whatever the case is. And for them to, to develop this identity rooted in running the football was great. Vince, Matt, jump in here. What do you guys think, Vince? I will start with you. What's the biggest storyline? To, to piggyback off you guys, it was probably the uh, like how underutilized the tight ends were in this offense for me. Uh, with a guy like Payne Durham at uh, Purdue having 500-plus yards uh, the previous year, I mean, you would expect a little bit more out of that room even. I mean, I realize what you're working with there, but you can get more than what we got out of that spot. Uh, you can get more touchdowns, more hitch routes, hitch hitch routes, like in the red zones, things like that. Uh, it just provides for a different opportunity for you to spread the ball around. Uh, you see it a lot with the Chiefs and that matchup with the number three wide receiver and uh, a safety or an outside linebacker. It's uh, you know, it's something that you can't really teach size on, you know, size. So I'm anxious to see how much a guy like Jamari Johnson does, how well he does in the spring and in this off season to improve on uh, coming into next season. Yeah. And Matt, before you jump in here, it, just to kind of piggyback off of that, you know, one of the things that people might ask themselves, how is the tight end a storyline of any magnitude for a football team? Right. And like, like no offense to the tight end. It really is though. Right. We're seeing this more and more in modern day football with the NFL, particularly with these teams that can get matchups with nightmares with tight ends. And, um, Keith, I don't know what your thoughts on are on it, but it seemed like that was a huge portion of the I offense. Mean, I mean, even ideally, lock. you could put that tight end out as the number one wide receiver and even match him up on a corner. And a lot of times what a defensive coordinator will do is they see that guy out there. They might even move a linebacker, go ahead and move a line, uh, middle linebacker or something out there. I don't know why they're thinking that because, I mean, I like my matchup regardless because you have something built in for the tight end to run if he's running a route against a corner, and you also have something built in for him, obviously, against a linebacker as well. No, I think that's a key point because really really when you get down to the red zone and, and short yardage types of situations, it's all about matchups. And I think that they started to – it seemed like they tried harder towards the end of the season. Kiersey seemed to be more of a focal point later in the year, but early in the season, it was just really a non-factor. And I, I can't agree more, like, how they utilize that spot next year with all the talent they've got coming in of the portal, including Johnson and Kersky coming back. I mean, there's an opportunity to really expand the offense. And, and I think that that goes back to the point of the offense not really being what it was expected. I mean, Purdue – at Purdue, Brown was able to, to really spread the ball around. And it wasn't just those receivers. You have those tight ends and you can't cover everyone. You can't focus on everyone. And when you add that other factor in there, um, I think it's it's going to really change the way the offense looks next year. Um, and I think it was it, it was a big factor in where the offense really wasn't able to get to where it needed to be because they didn't have the full complement of what they needed from the offense. And yeah, I mean, uh, it, I, even if they're in a zone and they can pull those linebackers eyes off, yeah. you know, his his key for just a second. To get a you know a receiver somebody behind him on a on a dig or something like that. I mean, it's something. It's a whole different 
unlock of the offense that it's almost like Jeff was handcuffed a little bit this year with that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Matt, hop in here, man. What do you think? So in reality, my biggest takeaway from the season was how like we went into the season thinking, okay, this is going to be a team led by its offense and specifically, specifically the passing game. When in reality, it was kind of anchored by the defense in the run game. But for the sake of content, I'm going to go with something else. Um, it, it's kind of building on what um, Vince had to say, but I'm going to go with a different offensive skill position. And honestly, it was the the inconsistency, and I don't want to use the word disappointment, but it's it's teetering towards that. The inconsistency of the wide receiver room outside of Jamari Thrash. Because, I mean, we can all uh, agree that if – Thrash is healthy for the entire season. He he was probably going to threaten to break the single season receiving record for, um, at Louisville, but and that's only that's not to say because he was so talented. It's because everyone else in the wide receiver room for the course of the season wasn't really consistent. Chris Bell, while he had great moments, wasn't consistent. Amari Huckins, Bruce, same story. Kevin Coleman, same story. And he kind of, for some reason, phased out of the rotation at times. Jaden Thompson and Jimmy Callaway were, in my opinion, dis- uh, disappointments. I know Thompson was injured for a large chunk of the season, but even when he was healthy, he didn't really seem to kind of crack the you know main receiving core. And during that second half of the season, where Thrash wasn't as big of a factor just because he had the injured wrist and you needed kind of someone to like really step up and kind of command a wide receiver one role with thrash kind of hampered and you had guys come kind of come through in spurts and moments but no one really you know took charge when thrash was you know kind of affected by the injury that was the surprising thing for me matt is nobody stepping up and taking charge because Wide receivers like that, them in the corners are the two most ego filled spots on the room. And there's only what you know, three wide receivers, two wide receivers, one wide receiver. There's only usually two corners out there that are going to be, you know, nipping at the bit to go out there and be the guy. So you would expect, I mean, every single one of those receivers will tell you, Did they throw me the ball? If you ask them after the game, Did they throw me the ball enough? Their honest answer will say, No, every single time. It doesn't matter if they have one reception or if they have 10 receptions. And that's how their attitude should be. So, so to see nobody step up, that's the most disappointing thing for sure. Well, I think the other aspect too is that even when they got opportunities, guys were dropping passes. Uh, guys weren't weren't fine. Guys weren't able to get separation and things like that. You know, that's the part that killed me. Is that you know, I think it comes back to the consistency factor. There are moments when these guys would would make the plays, and then there's moments where they're not. And you really need your 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 best receivers, your top two to three guys, to be able to consistently be there to make the plays and not just, hey, the, the ball's coming away, I'm making a catch, but, you know, the ball's coming away and I've got separation from this DB because I'm always open, you know, and that's the thing, to your point, you know, they might say that I didn't get enough passes. I don't think any of those guys would ever say I was always open and be, yeah. be honest about it, right? There's, yeah. zero, there's yeah. zero 7-Elevens. We had a bunch of, like, uh, marathon gas stations that closed <laughs> yeah. at 9, 30, 10 o'clock on, on Fridays. <laughs> And, and 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 that works if you can make those contested catches, 
you know, there are plenty of receivers out there that that that's what they make their bread and butter on is that, you know, I might not always have separation, but I'm going to make the catch. And that was the thing that, you know, you got to be one or the other. You, and, and if you're neither, you're really not going to be able to contribute to the offense. And, and I think late in the season, we saw that with Thrash being, you know, hampered. And also Thrash was getting all the focus on the, the attention because if your defense is obviously you're going to try to take away him because no one else is really stepping up. Um, but I think it comes back to the other factors that, you know, you got to have more options and the tight ends being an option there then takes, it just gives you your quarterback, more guys to work with. Um, and, it, and it all kind of plays in, in, in hand, right? Is that, you know, they ran the ball better, which is great, but they also ran the ball way more than we expected because they couldn't pass the ball as well as we expected them to. So, you know, but, you know, kind of circle all the way back to kind of maybe my point was that they still were able to go out there and really um, um, do good things on offense, you know, not to the point I think anybody really wanted late in the season. But, you know, to be able to kind of overcome those issues, I thought was one of the most surprising things. But it's also to me, you know, a, a, a huge kind of plus and positive because you can only hope that as the offense, as Brom starts to build his roster the way he wants, you just hope to see that that just expands and continues to get better. Hear Jeff like shift his mind saying, you know, my number one receiver is is hurt, banged up right now. I have to lean more into the run game. And he talked about that uh, at his press conference, learning, you know, learning to have to play more defense uh, at Purdue opposed to just trying to outgun and outscore everybody. So, you know, knowing that he's not afraid to adapt, you know, even midseason gives you a lot of confidence. Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, you look at a game like just kind of pinpointing on the schedule here, right? Like you look at a game like NC State. If you had told me preseason that Louisville's going to go on the road into Carter Finley and win that game 13 to 10, I would have <laughs> laughed at you and and told you to go lose your money in Vegas because that was a horrible, horrible bet. But that's the way that it that it went down. Louisville wins that game. Because they have a defense uh, that's able to to limit uh, opposing offenses, ultimately got the quarterback benched. Um, you know, if you remember all the way back that far, uh, and then you know be able to run the football and pound the pound the hell out of the clock and and be able to get out of there whatever it looks like. I mean, that's just that's a little bit of a different style, I think, than what we had seen with Jeff Brom, like you had mentioned, Vince at, at Purdue. Um, two things, just a storyline that I think that we haven't touched on, and we would be kind of uh, it would be shameful of us to not touch on is Jack Plummer and the inconsistencies and ups and downs of Jack Plummer. Um, you start out the season pretty quickly, kind of getting a synopsis of what you're going to get with Plummer, right? That game is, is an anomaly, but also is a game where he was pretty Jack Plummer-ish, like, Threw a yeah. couple touchdowns, but he also <laughs> it's just uh, an early sighting. We just didn't realize. Yeah, it. we weren't ready. Yeah, it was an early, early sighting of Jack Plummer. Um, and Louisville has that weird second quarter where it's like, holy shit, this is a Syracuse game all over again. But in that game, right, Jack Plummer does some pretty cool things. It's his highest career rushing game ever of his life. First game of the year. Also throws an insanely frustrating interception. Just ups and downs, ups and downs. And we saw that all season long. We saw glimpses of the guy that we thought he would be in, say, a Notre Dame um, when they win that game 33-20, to 20, and he's got a, if I'm not mistaken, a, a near-perfect QBR because he had no turnover. He didn't do anything. Yeah. Right? It's the it's the ant on top of the cracker getting carried along the way in, in a way. J.J. McCartney. Exactly, <laughs> right. McCarthy. But <laughs> then you have the Pittsburgh game. You have the, the first half of the Virginia game. You have these insanely bad – 
uh, red zone turnovers. But then you have, again, on the other hand, these plays that you don't win football games without. The 70-plus yard touchdown to Amari Huggins-Bruce in Virginia is the one I go back to over and over again. There was plays against Virginia Tech. There was plays in that Notre Dame game. Um, even the Miami game, he's making plays late. How – I don't even know really where to start with this conversation, but um, Keith, just give me your thoughts on Jack Plummer. I know that's a very open-ended conversation, but uh, <laughs> I'm just curious on maybe that'll kind of help decide where we go with this convo. Well, I, I think Plummer was, was, you know, I think the criticism was over the top for the most part, um, which, which happens. And I think obviously as a, as a guy that, um, you know, I think he came in with, with people knowing that Brom had already benched him before and it became a, is this really the best we can do kind of situation of just bringing in a guy that he knows and all that. So I think that factored into the criticism, but I think that, you know, overall Plummer was, was fine, you know, and fine is, is a word that you can use when you win 10 games. If he, if you win seven or eight and he's fine, he's not fine anymore. He didn't do enough. Right. So, you know, I think that I think that you know, kind of overall, how you judge them is kind of tough because of the fact that they won, but then you lose the last three games of the season and he plays poorly, and so it factors in there. So I, I get kind of where some of that criticism came from, but I think the biggest issue I had with with Plummer this year is that you bring in a guy like him as a you know, what six year guy, he's played a lot of football, you don't expect the mistakes that he made. I mean, some of the things that he did on the football field were absolutely unacceptable for a guy at his level. Reds it would be – they were Red unacceptable if you had mm-hmm. these things happening by, like, freshmen. Like, he was making freshman mistakes as the guys played a lot of football. And, you know, you just – you can't really excuse that because that's why you bring him in is so that you don't have those things happen. I mean, that's that's it. I mean, he doesn't really bring – a lot of NFL talent kind of stuff where you're going to say, okay, this guy's going to come in and win you football games, but you absolutely cannot bring him in and have him lose you games. And I think that's where he made losing plays and whether or not some of the plays he made led to some of those losses, is kind of a moot point. You make losing plays. And as a quarterback, you, you can't, you just don't, that's not why you bring him in. So I think that's the, the overarching thing for me is that, you know, you bring a guy like him in to, to just be, a, at the very least, a game manager, a guy that's not going to lose you a game, and you make losing plays repeatedly throughout the season, and he never got better. He, not, he never got better with that specifically. You know, he kept making those losing plays late in the year. You just can't have that. So, you know, I think that was kind of, you know, even late in the year, he, he made a – I can't – maybe it was a USC game. He made a throw. Uh, it, was the, it was a throw to uh, Jaden Thompson where you need a first down and he just makes a poor throw. You can't have those mm-hmm. things happen. And you definitely can't have them in game 14, 15, you know, like you just can't do that. And so that was where I think that was the biggest issue with Plummer. And I think the other aspect is he didn't do enough on the positive side, which you weren't expecting that, right? You don't really need him to do that. But he didn't offset it. And so you can't help but, help but focus on those negative things he did. And I think that's what can end up happening, you know, for the overall season for him. I, I was going to say what bothered me like the most, I agree with you for sure, Keith, but he, he was fine. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, there's really nothing more you can say about it. I mean, it's, it was a true roller coaster of a season with this man. I mean, shoot, he got his 10 wins. So I can't, I mean, you can't say much, but I wish he would 
his pre-snap reads, I wish like his ability to read a defense and just get the ball out of his hands quickly and accurately, to your point, Keith, was just off for me. That's not something I would expect out of a guy his age. Uh, I, I just expected a little bit more in that area. Maybe that's to Jeff and not having as many motions or things like that or indicators to give Jack a, a read. Or maybe it's on Jack to not be able to make a good enough pre-snap read to make a, a clear decision of where he's going to the football once the ball is snapped. You know, you know, I I, I wonder if sorry, it's kind of a little bit off topic, but not really. I wonder if, you know, Brom expected him to be better with that and not have to give him as much help, right? He's played so much football. That you, you expect, expect, like, hey, I don't have to do all this pre-snap stuff. I don't have to do anything to help him identify coverages. It's just like, hey, he he's been around, and you wonder, like, as a guy, I'm assuming he doesn't have a lot of classes, right? So, <laughs> what are you doing all week if you're not just watching film and looking for all your all those things, right? And that's where yeah. I, guess yeah. I wonder if Jeff was like, okay, I can bring this veteran guy. He's going to take, you know, underwater basket weaving online, you know, for for hey, You're talking to that guy that took a walking class, Keith. Right? I mean, <laughs> you would think that, and then it's like, all right, he's going to have nothing but time to watch film and prepare for games, and then he gets out there, and you're like, what were you doing all week? Like, were you just, sh- like, shaping up the mustache and beard? Like, what is going on that you're not – like readily seeing what you should be seeing pre-snap because yeah, that was, those are the things that stand out. Cause you, the, anytime you see a quarterback, the ball hits his hands and it's like panic. I'm like, what are you doing? What were you doing before the ball got there? Like exactly. it just, that happened yeah. a lot. And, and then he starts really kind of, it's not okay. I can't process that something looks different. Maybe I'm, I, and it just, it, it became like a panic mode and he's just running around extending plays and then he's making those losing plays where he's just throwing the ball to God knows who or fumbling or whatever it may be. So it, it almost seems like he was trying too hard. And I and I don't understand why because like it's not like there was another quarterback that what that was like maybe an immediate threat to unseat him and except for maybe Brock Doan since he had some experience from last season. But I mean like Plummer was Jeff's guy. And yep. we kind of saw as the season I'm, went look, on when I, I'm I'm sorry, but I guarantee you, Jack's like when he's going through the recruiting process, he's like, Coach, will, will you bench me again? He's like, ah. he's like, I mean, come on, Jack, I can't prop, but Coach, will you bench me again? And he's like, all right, fine, Jack, I won't bench you if you will come to Louisville. It's like a blood oath that they took preseason, Matt. It had to have been, especially with. Heading into the season, like one of the things that was touted about the quarterback room was how deep it was. You have Plummer, then you have Doman coming back with the experience he has. Conley, I mean, he's been here a while. Then you've got, you know, Pierce and Brady who were experienced. Like, t- Shut up, Keith. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's deep, Matt. Basketball, team, basketball team's deep right now, too. <laughs> 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 but anyways, you have all these guys on, on the roster, but then like at you never really felt at any point that even with the mistakes that Jack was making, that they were a threat to step in at a moment's notice because Jeff seemed like he I don't know if he had too much faith 
in Jack or wasn't sure if any of the quarterbacks behind him were far enough along in their development, which if the latter is the case, then maybe the quarterback room wasn't as deep as we thought it was. I think that's fair. I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, they had guys in the quarterback room. And how many guys could actually come out there and really, you know, do better than what he did? And, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I pointed this out, me and Mark Ennis talked about this earlier in the year. I said, you know, I think guys like Evan Conley and, and Brock Doman, of course, obviously weren't really what you really want at this level. But I always gave credit to the fact that those guys won games for Louisville. And I think that part of that was that, you know, little credit to Scott Satterfield, he kind of molded things around those guys and what they can do. You know, you, you know, Brock Doman came in last year when Malik went down and they changed the offense to make it work for Brock Doman. And, you know, I do wonder if, especially with the way the run game was working this year, if you could do the same thing and say, hey, you know, you know, Plummer is not getting it done. Where, where he's not, he's making too many mistakes. Can I bring in a Doman and say, okay, we're going to mold this around him and what his strengths are. And, you know, who knows? I, I think he played admirably last year, but I still think there were so many just gaps in this game where you're really cutting off anything down the field. Um, you're really cutting off a lot of those quick things they like to do. I think he was more of a five-step drop intermediate pass guy. Um, but, I, I, you know, at the same time, though, I still think that, you know, Plummer did enough. I think that he just – I think his negatives were really the issue. I think his positives are perfectly fine. You you, just, you got out of him what you needed for the most part in the positive aspect. If he could just cut out those the silly things he did, which still to still to this day, well, I don't think I'll ever get over the fact that he did so many freshman mistake things. Um, you know, and I just don't think that – I think that the faith came from the fact that, like, yeah, he did it, and it's like there's no way he'd do that again. And then he would do it again, you know, and it's like – Hold my beer. <laughs> it's like – I think that's – I really, truly think that Jeff had to step back and say, okay, this is something I can't expect him to do. And then he does it and it's like, okay, brain fart or whatever it may be. And then, you know, he would just go out and do it again. And you're like, and I, I don't know. I think that he just couldn't lose faith in the fact that they were so silly. And and, and a lot you know, of the that, mistakes, Keith, like to your point, what I think it is is like the defense was not doing anything crazy disguise-wise. It wasn't yeah. like – uh it was just a normal, your normal deal, and he's just making a poor decision. Yeah, it it it's it it's it's mind boggling, but I mean, yeah, I don't know how. It, I I don't know. I'm sitting here still wondering how, ten games, you know, it, what we could have got more out of with a better yeah. quarterback, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You just said yeah. what ninety five percent of the fan base thinks in their heart. I know like everybody we is. just could have gotten yeah, a like, little more. It's yeah. like trying to get that last little bit out of the tooth your toothpaste bottle or the you know last little squeeze of <laughs> You're squeezing juice. Jack up, yeah, man. Like, Jack, 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 come on, Jack. A little bit more, man. Come on. Yeah, just Matt, a little bit. Matt, go ahead, man. I didn't mean to cut you off. What what do you got? And it's not like a lot of his bad decisions were like ones that were like calculated risks, kind of like what it, building off what Keith said, like whenever he f- fucked up, they were like, "What the fuck were you thinking?" Yeah, <laughs> like, there were a couple, yeah. there were a couple throws over the season where I just kind of sat back and like, "How did you not see the guy right there that you're like throwing to?" Like, yeah, it, I think it was. Did he throw a pick six against Virginia? 
Yes, yes, he did. It was the that, uh, the dump pass where he tried to throw it the lob. He tried to throw the lob yes, the linebacker. That and, one. We all you could have picked Jesus. that off, dude. You could have yeah. picked that pass off. Like <laughs> it, we're all that's, just like Jack. Throw that's it a the one higher. that's st- that's the one that stands out to me because I'm just like, oh man, he's the yeah. the defender is right there. It's not like you can miss him. He did it like, again. Even in the a USC little game. like trying to lob it over here. I mean, like yeah. I remember that one because the first thing that popped my head was like that true fresh. He's a true freshman linebacker, and I was like, he baited him. Like I was like, that guy outsmarted a six-year senior by simply dropping, dropping to a death, and then just literally like just dropping to a spot where it's like, hey, I can be here. He's gonna think I have, he has a window. Yeah, he's gonna think he force him. You know, and I'm like, to make a decision. Yeah, and I was like, this is that's that's those are the types of things that you just can't do. But I. I think the one for me is he threw one in the in, in the end zone. I can't remember which game it was. And I was like, like he just threw it up. And, you know, it's just about valuing the football. And those are the things that, like, yeah, you, you can't help but sit back. It's like if you can't value the football to the point where, hey, I'll just eat it and worst comes to worst, we're going to fill go. Uh, worst comes to worst, at least I'm putting the defense in an advantageous spot where the, the, the offense has to go 90 yards. Like you, you. Those are the things that, like I said, you you expect a freshman to make those mistakes because you expect a freshman to think those things through. You expect him to think all of that through in the huddle, yeah. you know, before he can get to the line that hey, I can't make a mistake here. I can't do something, you know, catastrophic here because here's the list of things, you know, what it would be. And I I think that's where kind of that's where my struggle is with him is that you just can't do those types of things and you can't you can't accept that. And that's where I get I get the the fan base being extremely harsh on him, but I think overall it was a little over the top. Yeah, I wonder who he like felt confident getting the ball to. You know, you have these, you have certain plays and stuff with Tutu. We had that deep over where Tutu can make the decision on if he wanted to take it high or running underneath the safety. Like Malik knew, like all right, this is the ball. Like I'm getting Tutu can get open right here. This is the one. Like, I wonder how many of those, you know, Jack thought confidently because of the wide receivers we had outside of Jamari. Like, oh, man, I don't feel confident with Amari Huggins-Bruce running this route. I don't feel confident with him making a play right here. I wonder how much of it was that playing. How many of those plays does Jeff have available because of the wide receiver? You know, you don't have a 2-2 out there where you can say, hey, we know, you know. You can make a a decision. Yeah, you can make a decision uh, post-snap. Like that's yep. a lot of that's a lot of what the receivers are doing is making a decision post snap on what they're gonna run. Yep. So yeah, yeah. So that's a fair point, man. At times, it felt like I was watching if as if Mike Glennon and Johnny Manziel had a baby. Yeah, watching Jack Plummer, like you got the the most <laughs> average but reckless quarterback you could you ever definitely imagine. got Mike Glennon's legs. Yeah, but but you know, Vince, if you remember. <laughs> Back oh, to the, my favorite Jack Plummer play was the two hand bounce pass out of bounds. I still oh. to this day talk about that. It was the best throwaway I've ever seen. Like we're inventing a new way to be bad at football out here at times. <laughs> but no, um, it it was you know when you're in your first year, I always would tell people this. Like, Jack, I think Jeff Brom knew what he signed up for with Jack Plummer. I think he knew what he was getting himself into. It was about squeezing every ounce of positivity out of him. 
knowing there was going to be some bad along the way because it just a little bit of Jack was going to make the team a lot better, just a little bit. And I think as you move forward, I think there's still doubts about Tyler Shuck because we feel like, I mean, I can't say we, but I feel like we're, we might be walking back into this same type of situation. You got a guy that's in his seventh year of college football. He is who he is. And he's not been a guy who's won at the highest level. It feels like we're walking into it. But again, when you can when you can surround them with these pieces and play complementary football and have a strong tight end and have a multiple wide receivers and a running back who can catch the ball and a running back who can run the ball, it opens things up. And so we'll see what that looks like. I know we've spent a lot of time on this storyline thing. It's really kind of morphed into a lot a larger conversation about what this team was. And one thing I feel like I would be remiss in, to to not mention was the development of the holdovers from Scott Satterfield. One of the things we talked about throughout the season was this notion that throughout the Satterfield era, there wasn't enough talent to win football games. And there was guys that were too small who couldn't play meaningful roles. And they're, you know, they had these offers from only juke, you know, from low level schools or they were Juco transfers. And I know on this show, we like to educate, uh, we like to pride ourselves on having educated, but lousy takes. Like that's just what we do. It I is what it is. I never have a lousy take. But what we always said was these guys are not bad. Like, it's just a matter of the fact that they're either in the wrong position. They're not getting coached up enough. That there needs to be more. And this season, I think we saw that with Jalen Alderman, TJ Quinn, guys like Ben Perry, Antonio Watts, um, Jarvis Brownlee, Mason Ryder. The one, Ryder, that, the one that stands out to me, Jacob, is Jared Dawson. Seeing oh, Jared Dawson. My God. Oh, yes. oh, my God. The way that he stepped up this year, man. Yeah. It didn't – you know, it wasn't a lot of tackles, but he was 100% felt yeah. out yep. there. It's He's like a bull every, rusher, man. Bull yeah, rusher. I mean, the dude – Nasty. <laughs> Ivy, I'll never forget being in the D, D staff room uh, and Ivy over here, he's like, look at him right here. He put the shockers on him. He's, <laughs> he's holding his arms out. Ivy's got his arms out, shaking his arms like like a madman because, you know, Jared Dawson's driving our center five yards back into the backfield. He's one of the strongest dudes on the team. And, you know, with that low center of gravity, if he's coming off the ball at full speed up underneath the center's chin or the guard's chin, I mean, he's damn near impossible to block. You're going to have to use two. And at that point, you know, somebody's coming free. Yeah. Well, I think I think he's an example of a guy also that injuries factor in so much and we don't really get to get a lot of insight of that. And I think that, you know, sometimes guys have injuries, they have nagging injuries, they have things that we just don't know anything about. And in sometimes like I end up kind of catching myself getting frustrated. It's like, why are they not playing this guy? This guy showed he can play and then like the next game he's not playing. Sometimes these guys have they just get banged up and whatnot. And I know Dawson's had nagging injuries throughout his career and you know, if he can stay healthy, um, you know, another, you know, he's another guy, uh, Quincy Riley hasn't had a full offseason where he's healthy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one thing I'm looking forward to with him coming back is, you know, can he have a full offseason to work on his body, work on his technique, and be able to work out all summer? You go back to guys like your Sierra Dula and Yaya Diaby. And I know a lot of people paid attention to those guys before their senior year. They started working out around the country, working out with different players, working out with different trainers. They came back looking like completely different guys yeah. physically. And I think that it would be really cool to see some of these other guys going into their late seasons, their final season, to kind of have that same mindset and have a healthy offseason where they can go and just work on themselves. Because I, I really expect that for Quincy, but I think a guy like Jared Dawson, a guy like Destel, some of these guys are just – have their last season to really show that they can be NFL guys. If they go out and really work on themselves and improve themselves, I think it'd be really great to see. Our, our show favorite, Mason Riger, last time he had 
a, a, a healthy offseason, he came back looking like a completely different person. So if yeah. he's healthy this offseason, he's going to come back looking like freaking J.J. Watt or something. Yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. it's definitely going to be great, man. I, and two other man. holdovers that kind of impressed me were T.J. Quinn and, like you said, Ben Shalen Alderman, just because one of the um, storylines heading into the season was like, okay, like the defensive line is good, the secondary is good. The question mark on the defense is linebackers just because they lost all that production. The guys that were coming back were mostly unproven or were kind of coming off of mediocre to below average campaigns. And then the linebacker spot goes out and like across the board, whether that be inside linebacker or the star position, not only were they not a weak spot at times, they were like the strength of the defense just because they were as as impactful as the defensive line was in some of their prowess with stopping the runs. Like in the middle of the season, it's the linebacking core making all those plays, helping to kind of bottle up the run. They were taking great angles to the ball carrier. They were wrapping up in the open in the open field. They were swarming to the ball. I mean, TJ Quinn played like a bat out of hell. Jalen Alderman had a fan hard. Yeah, like, Jalen Alderman had a fantastic bounce back campaign. Um, ben Perry had a was like an X factor at star. Antonio Watts, after looking good in both spring and fall, in some of the time that he did see, I think he made a handful of plays. Uh, yeah, I, I was impressed by the linebacker spot overall, and a lot of those guys were holdovers from the Satterfield era. Yeah, you have three out of the top five. Uh, tacklers that led the defense that were holdovers. I mean, and then you have in the top 10, I think you have six or seven. So, I mean, and, and, you know, holdover is an interesting word, right? Cause Quincy Riley, it was dominant before Scott Satterfield left and was dominant after Scott Satterfield left. Right. But Antonio Watts didn't play in 2022. Like that. We saw him sparingly. We saw TJ Quinn literally did not play. I don't think until late in the season. And then, played really well when he was on the field enough where you're like, okay, this guy can actually kind of fit in here, but they, they, they got, they pulled the most strings and the most and and pushed the most levers to get the most out of these guys. You know, we talked all off season about how the linebackers needed more and Keith Brown was supposed to be the guy and San Juan Clark was going to develop into a starter by season's end. And there was no way you're taking TJ Quinn and Jalen Alderman off the field. I mean, they almost became like Kendrick Duncan and, um, I forget the safety that played Not with him. No, no, no. But the point being that there was that year, if you remember, I think it was 22, the guys never came off the field. They oh, played yes, every, yes, uh, yeah. uh, Quintario Cole. They played every play. Mm-hmm. And eventually you're like, okay, this is really good, but it's also not a great sign for what's behind them. Right. Yeah, so that's how yeah. it was with linebacker this year. Those guys really stepped up and, you know, again, this team was not deep in every position, but they were deep in a lot more places than they have been. And I think you saw that, what Scott Satterfield and his staff identified was talent that needed development. And we knew that with a lot of those guys and we saw it come to fruition with some, I mean, look, a guy like Cam Wilson, he, you know, he wasn't a dominant pass rusher, but he finally got on the field and showed that, okay, this dude actually can play. Right. So we saw that with a number of guys, Chris Bell was the second leading receiver on the team. Um, it was just – it was a lot of places. And then Evan Conley, right? How can we not mention our guy? Yeah, I mean, how can we not mention our guy out there becoming our wildcat our wildcat running back? I mean, playing just, special teams the entire year. Talk about the biggest surprise of the year. Name, another, Conley. Quarterback. Yeah. Name another quarterback playing specs. The range, man. The range on a guy like Evan Conley is just insane. We'll be right back after this commercial break. 
From the Pink Seats Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Frankfurt Avenue Liquor and Wine. You can find them at 2115 Frankfurt Avenue, right next to the Manhattan Project. Full bar service and a full liquor store. Stop in there today and tell them from the Pink Seats Podcast sent you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Mr. and Mrs. is for everyone. From a more traditional 90 proof to a cash drink that's smoother. In 2013, Russ going to the hole. Boy, could you use that right now. Mr. and Mrs. Bourbon covers tastes, all different tastes of preferences, six different bourbons that they're offering. Be among the first to try Mr. and Mrs. Bourbon, the official bourbon of State of Louisville and the Starting 502 podcast on shelves anywhere you find your liquor. And now online at Mr. and Mrs. Bourbon.com. Go check it out. Defensively, you saw guys come into their own. They needed more, and I think you're seeing that this offseason, including during the middle of this episode, Tyler Barron from uh, Tennessee slash Ole Miss has committed to Louisville. So, like, you're seeing them add to this defense. The secondary, as I just mentioned here in our chat, it's insane next year. Like, again, football's not played on paper, but on paper next season, Louisville's defense with a healthy MJ Griffin, a healthy Devin Neal. You bring in Blake Ruffin. You have Tamario McDonald. You have Wesley Walker. You have... Quincy Riley back. You have these guys. You have Aaron Williams healthy, a former four-star cornerback, right? You have all these pieces. Corey Thornton. You have more, you know, more and more pieces to add to this puzzle. And it's like, okay, man, that it's just this is just the beginning. And you have to remind <laughs> yourself, last year, this year, 2023, just the beginning. The D-line you know is what I mean? where it's at, bro. Like that's that's where you win yeah. football games, is, is mm-hmm. obviously yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and I mean to be able to go into, I mean, I'm ready to play like Saturday. Like I, I need to it. see this D line <laughs> yeah, playing yeah, yeah. together, especially with the commit that yeah. we just got. Yeah, I mean, man. it's, it's, it's yeah. going to be nasty. I mean, the, hopefully, 
you know, it's an endless rotation of, you know, good defensive dudes. linemen. Yeah, right, dudes. right. And, and like, again, we're not trying to address 2024 today, but when you look at this from just an on-paper perspective from a pass rush standpoint, like you have the 11 and a half sacks back from Ashton. You have the five sacks back from Mason. You have just about every single guy along the defensive line outside of Jeff Clark. You know, we still don't really know what's going on with the status of a guy like Jermaine Lole in terms of eligibility. We've seen some deflections, but you talk about adding uh, a Baron to that list, right? Where we didn't really get the most out of Stephen Heron last year. You talk about adding Thor Griffith to that list. Uh, we haven't put en enough respect on Jordan Garrard from Florida International slash Minnesota, right? I mean, you're talking about an all-conference USA player last year. I think first or second team defensive lineman with an incredible statistical uh, sheet that he brings to Louisville. Um, this defense is built to, to win games next season. And if you just get a slightly better offense, I mean, the, the ceiling is really unlimited to what you can become. Let's keep it kind of moving on in this conversation here. And we talk about the ups and the downs. What is kind of when you look back on this season um, and I can start first to kind of set the tone and maybe take the answers of everyone in the room. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. But when you look at like a defining moment for Louisville this season, and you look at what ultimately kind of determined the 10 and four record, and there was a lot of highs and lows in there, but what, what kind of stands out to you for me, it is the second half of that Pittsburgh game. It is – there have been nightmares that I've had about that game. I've had more conversations <laughs> with friends about that Pittsburgh game in the second half than I have about any Louisville football game in the last probably five or six years. To me, mm -hmm. that second half, as you're dealing with so many things going wrong, it showed that when you really put Louisville out on paper, when you really force Louisville to answer the question, what are you – Louisville couldn't stand up to the test of it, and they could not bounce back from what was ultimately self-inflicted wounds. I thought that that game really summarized the first half of the Georgia Tech game, the second half of the Indiana game, the Virginia first and, and second half and the, the third quarter. You know, some of the games that weren't the Duke shutouts and the Virginia Techs of the world, like these games were Louisville, the Miami game, where you're just like, oh, my God fucking God, like, can we just do something right for once? <laughs> but then ultimately, like, you know, for most of them, Louisville pulled them out, but Pittsburgh was the sign, and we should have known at that time that Louisville's ceiling was probably closer to, you know, uh, uh, being a middle-of-the-pack team than a playoff team. Uh, still a tw top 25 team, but more of a middle-of-the-pack team. Uh, but for you guys, what is, Keith, what is the defining moment of this season? It can be the USC game. I mean, my gosh, Miller Moss might throw another touchdown here in a couple seconds. Like, I mean, you have the Florida State game where we just are begging for a yard, a yard. Like, you, Jack Plummer threw for 111 yards against Florida State. You're just begging for one completed pass. What is the real defining moment for this team, wherever it is in the season? I think for me it was a Virginia game, just kind of overall. Um, you know, the pit game felt like a like, hey, this they're gonna have a bad game this season. And I do think it brought people down to earth about what the ceiling was for the team. But that Virginia team was bad. Um and I think the defense started to really crack in that game. And I, I think it was after two really good games. And I, I still I don't I think it was like a for me, it was kind of like a bewilderment of like, how do you come off these two games playing so well against two solid offenses and then go against a bad offense like Virginia and just look so, so poor in that game against a true freshman quarterback? 
you know, some receivers that were okay um, outside of obviously they're all American, but they were let different players on that team show out. And I thought that was a really a, a moment for me. It was like, okay, the defense is definitely not what I thought it was. Like, because it felt like they started off slow and then really ramped up. And then that game was like, no, something's still not there. Um, and it might just be that they just still don't have the guys, right? I mean, you know, I've spent this these last couple of weeks with people, you know, telling me, hey, Louisville doesn't need another quarter in the, in the portal. And I'm like, yes, they do. They, they need three starters because that's how football is played right now. And right, people are like, well, right. Chris Riley's coming back. It's like, I know he's coming back, but they still need another guy. Like, that's just two. You can't cover the whole field. Right. You know, like, it's just like, <laughs> this isn't Madden. You know, like, you can't just go out there and play like four, three, cover two stuff. And like, it, they need more guys. And I think that was a thing where, you know, Brownlee got injured. I think it really showed that, hey, you can't do what you want to do if you don't have the guys. And maybe that was all it was. But I think as the season went on, that was the point where it was like the defense really started to just really tumble. And, you know, the hope, obviously, is that, hey, it's just the guys. They need more guys, and they're bringing in more guys, obviously. But some of the scheme stuff really started to show out where you just had guys wide open. Uh, there just wasn't wasn't enough pressure, and that continued the rest of the season. So I think that's where a moment for me where – all I did all, all season long was kind of just looking for those moments of, okay, this seems better than I expected. And the offense still isn't where it needs to be. And the defense is way better than I thought it was supposed to be. So you start looking for those moments of like something's not right. And then the defense in that game really started to kind of slow show that it wasn't as good as it really seemed like. And I still don't know what really went wrong, but it felt like they got figured out a little bit. And uh, I thought that was really kind of a moment for me in the season where, Virginia and that bad team uh, coming off bad games really kind of made Louisville look really average, uh, in my opinion. So uh, instead of – we could go, probably go on and on about how the, the season ended, but I think I'm going to try and be a beacon of positivity here. And I, I'm going to say that my, my lasting, I guess, memory slash takeaway from the season – is how they looked against Notre Dame because that that is the kind of game, the kind of performance, the kind of atmosphere that you bring in a coach like Jeff Brahms because Louisville had kind of been there, done that with Satterfield in those ranked games. You weren't going to really show up for him, and it was the same way for the – in the last couple of seasons of Bobby 2.0, I mean, they didn't really show up. Louisville hasn't really been a serious player in these ranked matchups. And then not only do they welcome a top 10 team to Cardinal Stadium and beat them, I mean, they looked like – they made Notre Dame look like they didn't even belong on the same field. I mean, this high-profile offensive line was getting, was getting beat with regularity by – you know, guys like Mason Ryger and Ashton and everyone else in the front seven. And Jawar Jordan facing this stout Notre Dame defense is running all over the field. Like, while Jeff Brom obviously has his flaws, like he's got clunkers like the pit game and things kind of petered out towards the end of the season. The man knows how to win big-time games. And, yeah, we, we know about the Kentucky game, and that's – yeah, they lost there, but that's another discussion. But that Notre Dame game where, like, all of the eyes of college football are on you, he made – he 
took – how am I trying to say this? He left little doubt for the viewing audience who was the better team that night and that they belonged into a national discussion. Maybe not college football playoff right then and there, but like a national discussion about college football as a whole. Like whenever you start to tell the story of the season, at some point Louisville has to get mentioned. I definitely think that that's that's like your high of the season for sure, in my opinion. That is that is definitely my biggest high is beating Notre Dame. But my biggest low uh, doesn't come from losing to Kentucky. It, it comes from the Florida State loss in the conference championship. Uh, Matt, I mean, I agree with you that Jeff does win these big games. But, I mean, that's the one. That's the big one. That's the one, you know, you work the whole year. There's a poster of the ACC championship trophy outside of our locker room, and that's something you walk past every single day. So for the team to show up, or for the team not to show up and play that the way that they did uh, was definitely the most sour thing. I mean, you're talking to a guy that the only thing that made that 2016 season special was the fact that we won a we had a Heisman Trophy win. We dropped the last three games of the year, and we finished like shit. I mean, we everybody's lasting memory of that season is the Heisman and Creaky getting ran over by Darius Geis and the, uh, in the bowl. Game. And like that's your last, those are your lasting memories of that season. And now this team had the opportunity to do something really special, something that we've never done in school history. And they dropped the ball. That's, it was the, the most disappointing thing of the year. And it, it honestly, yeah, we won 10 games, but it soured a lot of the season for me. Yeah. I mean, Louisville found themselves in the very weird position in that they overachieved what their preseason goals and preseason expectations were, but in the same breath, like disappointed. Like that they overachieved overachieved though? Like, I mean, did you really I expected them to be in the conference championship game with what our schedule looks like yeah. this year. Yeah, I one hundred percent did. At the least North, the North Carolina bias or the ACC bias says Jack Plummer was benched at Purdue, went to Cal, and now he's your quarterback. And you mean to tell me you're a top ACC school? Like, ha! Huh. Like that was the joke, right? We talked about that in the off season. Louisville was going to be underplaced from a media voting standpoint because teams were going to have questions of, okay, you got to replace Yaya Diaby, you got to replace Yasir Abdullah, you got to replace. Control Clark, and now you're telling me that you Emily Cunningham, and you're telling me that you're gonna do so with Jack Plummer. Like the joke's on you there. Uh, well, and in reality, we saw that it was a an, uh, top to bottom a much better, more thorough football team. Ultimately, well, I think here's the thing. I guess for me, and and why I would say they overachieved, but I think I think Vinci nailed it. I mean, you had Lamar Jackson, and the best you can do is nine wins, right? I mean, that's just the history of the program. And it's not necessarily to say that the team was bad or poor or me. It's just that Louisville had never got over that hump. And getting the 10 wins, 10 wins is hard. You know, I think that's 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 the aspect that I think sometimes I mean I, I saw fans rating the season as a C and a B and whatnot. And I'm like, I can't I can't understand. They Louisville's never gotten to 10 wins in the ACC. It's been a decade since they got into 10 wins. They hadn't had multiple, you know, having multiple ranked wins in a season is not something that Louisville does on a regular basis. I think twice now, I guess, in the last 15 years. I think that's where the overachievement comes from is that, you you know, yeah, they should have gotten to where they were, where they got to based on the, based on the schedule. But that's not the first time that, you know, that's the, that's been the case, I guess. And so 
you know, I, I, I can I can completely understand, like, hey, with the schedule that they had, they should have gotten where they got to. I expected nine wins just because nine wins is the plateau. That's where they've gotten to before. Um, getting to 10 was something that, yeah, I mean, you with the way the schedule shook out, yeah, that, that should happen. But to Jacob's point, all of the question marks coming into the season really come down to a lot of the things that you have to worry about with coming in with even with Jeff Brom as your coach. Most of it really fell on the defense to me. I mean, I, I think that the defense being even serviceable was kind of like a man. I just don't know how they're going to do it. They even no matter who you bring in, they just lost so much. But I think these these guys are like stepping up and being well above what I expected them to be, especially a linebacker, but also on the defensive line was really kind of kind of surprising. And I think that was the point that it's like, man, no matter how easy that schedule is, that defense. And I, and I say this to be to be transparent. I watched every Purdue defensive snap last year, and I was just really, really worried. So I was like, this is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just like, this is the most boring and laid back and just, oh, my God, what, do you, what are they going to do when, like, you, and especially coming from when we saw leading the nation in sacks, and it's like, man, this just this defense doesn't do anything, but it's just like four-man rush every time. I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. And so I think that's that was a huge part of it. I think for plenty of folks is that can he come in and do what he hasn't done? And he did literally that. And I think that's the thing is that, oh, my God, they ran the ball better than he's ever done. They were at least back since, you know, his Western Kentucky days. And I think this is one of the best defenses he's ever fielded. So I think that's kind of part of it. But I, but I agree at the same point that, you know, there's, there's you, you, know, you look at both sides of it, that schedule – shaped up to be, hey, they should be able to do really well against the schedule. Uh, but I think delivering on it still, you know, was, was impressive, I guess. It, it just came down to being a stinker for me because of oh, who yeah. ended up being the quarterback at Florida State and what was going on. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. It, that's that's the yeah monkey wrench, I would say, for me. Like, I it just – man, to put up six points, you know – and to, for that matter, to hold them to 16, like, yeah. I mean, that's too much, in my opinion, with who they have on offense. I, I don't know. Man. No, it's weird because I think going to that game, I, I, I rarely do predictions, but going to that game, I never felt like they were going to win only because the way Louisville was playing going into that game and the way Florida State was playing were just the worst possible matchups. You know, See, Florida and that's State where I expected so Jeff Brom to turn it around oh, yeah. with, like, yeah. that's – to Matt, going back to Matt's point, he steps up for the big games. That's where I'm like, well, all right, I'm licking my chops. I'm like, this is it. This is the one. We're getting uh-huh. we're getting over the hump right here, Keith. And you know, didn't happen, yeah. But no, I hear you on that, hundred percent. I hear you. Still though, I mean, to be in your first season after uh, a program was. It wasn't as if it was at its at a low point, but in terms of fan interest, it couldn't have been much lower. Um, but in reality, the football was pretty close to being dang good for the last couple of years. And what Jeff Brom came in is he took his expertise, he took the talent, a, a fairly talented leftover group of guys. He brought in some fairly impactful transfers. I mean, 
you look at Jamari Thrash, Matt mentioned at the top of the show, you, you're talking about some records potentially being broken if he's healthy in terms of how they were getting him the ball early on. Jawar Jordan, the hamstrings, the knees, the ankles, all of it, man. I mean, prevented a, a potential Heisman type of season. I'm not saying he would have gone to New York, but it, it potentially could have been, you know, one of the greatest of a running back um, in a long time. And yet, Louisville was able to sneak out 10 wins. Like if some of these breaks happen the same way and some of these games go down to the same bounce, Louisville might be looking at a losing record over the last couple of years. But Jeff Brom comes in and in moments where you have the Virginia game, the Miami game, even the Indiana game, the the Georgia Tech second quarter, as I mentioned, you have these moments where you're like, all right, shit, we're losing. It's over. Louisville was able to always hang in there and figure out a way to get it done. And then that goes back to coaching. Um, you know, when it comes to coaching, I admired Jeff Brom this season. The ass rippings of Jack Plummer made it easier for me to not tweet at him because anything I would say would be much less than what Jeff Brom probably was uh, in his full Catholic Jeff Brom under the paper, not cursing, but probably screaming curse words. Um, Jack Plummer took was probably pretty heavy all year long. Uh, but at the same time, though, there were so many points where you say to yourself, like, if only this had happened this way, or if only we could have done things this way, or if only you win that Pittsburgh game, you probably have a chance to play in the college football playoff all in the first season. That's what makes it so much fun. You know, again, we talk about what this roster looks like heading into 2024. Anything less than nine, 10 wins is going to be a disappointment. I mean, I know that schedule is a little bit more challenging with uh, some of the games that they have, but still this roster is building on the success of year one. It's building on a, a lot of these guys coming back and more, more opportunity of um, understanding what the moment is like and what they're, what they're fighting for and what they want to achieve. And for me, that, that just, that breeds a lot of excitement through an off season and, and really starts to get me thinking we're back to the days of like 2004, three to 2005 where you're winning nine, 10, 11 games, three years in a row or 2011 or 2012, 2013 with Charlie Strong's teams where they bring back these groups and you're like, all right, they, they understand what is being asked of them. And we know that the results are coming. I feel that same way heading into 2024. Um, and I, I really think that despite the egg, the significance of landing in the ACC title is going to pay benefits. And we're seeing it in the portal, but we're going to continue to see that, a sleeping giant has been awoken and that Louisville is a school that can win football at the highest level and be a Washington in the college football playoff or be a TCU or be one of these teams that isn't necessarily in Alabama and LSU and Auburn or Georgia or, you know, a Texas, uh, these, uh, these big name schools, but can ultimately be competitive at the top, keep its coach because I don't think Jeff Brom's going anywhere unless it's, maybe the NFL. And I don't even think that would be a possibility, but Jeff Brom's not leaving. So you're talking about, you have a coach who's locked in a, a fertile recruiting grounds, the NIL money behind you. Now some proven success and a little bit of excitement and juice in the college football landscape. I don't know. As Michael Jordan once said, the ceiling is the roof. I feel like we're headed just sky <laughs> high, man. It, it's well, I, I don't mean to fan plans. out. I don't mean to fan out. Jacob's yeah. ready to run through a wall right now. Yeah, yeah, man. And you keep the whole coaching staff, right? Not a single coaching deflection this offseason, right? My, am I mistaken? Not one coach left. That's Not a one. Big... Yeah, that's because all the alumni had to beat up everybody that was coming from Mark Ivy. So yeah. take care right, of everybody. Right. So don't worry. Hey, that's, also, it's, it's, that's a big there's, deal. There's, man. Still, there's still time, but I, I know, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. The way things are going now, it could be two months from now, all of a sudden the coach is leaving and you're just like, what right. happened? You know, so, right. I think, 
I think the Jim Harbaugh understand a lot of times too is like, you know, grass isn't always greener. And I mean, you can you see that a lot in in the coaching world. And job security is no such thing in in this college football landscape. So the only job security you really have is under a guy like Jeff Brom, who you know is not going to leave, likely not going to get fired either because he's not going to do a poor enough job for that. So you're sitting pretty in a good spot, and you're on a team that's in contention to compete every year for the conference championship and potentially a playoff spot with it moving to 12 teams. I mean, if I'm an assistant coach, if I'm a position coach, I'm sitting pretty, and I'm just collecting and doing my job. Well, I mean, I think you've got a a crop of some guys who could, in theory, be head coaches next year or the year after. They got a a staff that they're sitting on that's really special. I mean – you know, you're talking about guys like Brian Brom, talking about Mark Hagan's. You know, Ron English is an, an older guy in terms of the coach, like being a head coach again, but has had that experience. And and Mark Ivy, of course. I mean, you're going to see him mentioned as a defensive coordinator if he continues to have his guys play at the level that the defensive line did for 2022, and then the linebackers did in 2023. It's it's a, it's just the coaching makes wonder. It really does wonders in terms of the development and growth. Um, Keith, let me ask you this question. Last question, and we will wrap up this episode here. Okay. Say I'm going to give you a a bit of a, of a proposition. Okay. You're Jeff Brom. You're going in for day one of the 2024 season. Your entire staff is sitting at a a round table and you're, they're looking for you of what the plan is and what you need to do differently and what they need to go work on, what film they need to watch all of that. You come in and and they're they're looking at you for this. What do you tell them? What is our plan of attack for 2024? Where do we need to go to work in the trenches this year to make sure that when we step back out on the field on September 3rd, 4th, whatever that Labor Day weekend is, that we are ready to go for an undefeated season and compete for a college football playoff? Because that's the goal. I know that that may not be the likelihood or the ultimate outcome. That is the goal in that first meeting when those coaching staff sit down. So what are you telling your staff? Well, I mean, you split up offense, defense. I think on the offensive side of the ball, they've got to figure out a way to turn their running game success into big plays uh, in the passing game. I mean, God, I, I hate mentioning Scott Satterfield because, you know, we're, we're past that one now, but that was what one thing that I thought he did really well is his offense was based on running the ball to set up deep balls down the field, and we saw that, and they've got to figure that out. I think, And, and it, it's really funny. This is – both of these things are going to be new to what he's done – during his time in power five, at the power five level, which is running the ball well, and what do we do with it? Well, you got to create big passing plays off of that, as opposed to manufacturing his big passing plays the way he's done it before. Uh, and on the defense side of the ball, they've got to figure out a way to get better pressure um, and consistent pressure on the quarterback, uh, whether that be manufactured with blitzes and things like that or finding a way to get four or five-man pressures where they can get to the quarterback, help out the secondary, and make sure we don't see what we saw later in the season where they weren't really getting to the quarterback and the secondary looked like it was getting, being exposed, but it was just a simple fact that you just can't cover it all day, right? So, um, you know, I think those are the two things that, you know, what do they need to improve on? Those are the two big things. They've got to create – manufacture manifest whatever mm-hmm. big plays in the passing game um because you just you can't win without doing that i think in my opinion and on the defense side of the ball if you're not you either have to you have to pressure mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to get sacks i mean you look at a team like georgia georgia hasn't gotten a lot of sacks over the last handful of years they pressured 
quarterbacks really well, though. Um, they've got to find a way to do that because that way you have complementary aspects on your front seven as well as your back end. Uh, and I think that's if, – if I'm Brown, those are the two things I'm saying. We've got to fix those things. That takes us to the next level. Yeah. For, for me, one of the things that I think this season, one of the what, what we saw as the year went on was one of the things that kind of plagued Louisville in 2021 – um, if you remember, you have that game against um, I think I think it was Notre Dame where they have like four or five near interceptions in the end zone. They lose that game like thirteen to ten or whatever it is. And there was all these games where the guys are so close to getting the sacks, they're so close to getting the interceptions, but they just couldn't get it done right. And then the next season, fifty sacks, like thirty interceptions. I mean, it was just like stupid video game numbers. I think this off season, it's all about putting in the work to finish finish the sack, finish the interception, finish the fumble, finish the run, finish the throw, whatever it is, to just get a little bit further in ultimately making those plays that you're talking about, Keith. Um, and, and a tweet from State of Louisville that, that we put out earlier really kind of indicates where I think Louisville is going in 2024 from a defensive standpoint, and that will be much more focused on getting after the quarterback. You have three guys that are ranked in the top 15 in terms of defensive linemen uh, from a 2025 NFL draft perspective. Thor Griffith, Ashton Gelati, and now Tyler Barron. Not to mention all the other guys that we've talked about, right? Like I told you guys, I think Mason Riger is a, a absolute splitting clone of Casey Hill that plays for the Washington Commanders. Like he is an NFL prospect. I, I know people may look at that and be like, "You're you're joking," but go watch the film against him against Joe Alt, and go watch the film against him and Boston College and that left guard this season, and you see an NFL draft draftable defensive lineman. But you're talking about five, six, seven, eight guys that can get up to the quarterback. This season, this this next year, if they can close like they did uh, in 2023, which getting 50 sacks is a lot by any means, but I'm telling you guys, that defense, and then Quincy Riley and interceptions, if you can start to create those plays and give yourself more offensive possessions – and take away the opportunity for the deep for the off- opposing offenses to make big plays may seem like that's a dumb statement, but that's winning football, baby. Like that, that's what you got to get to at some point. And that's, I think what was just missing this year in a lot of ways, uh, guys, what do you all think, Matt Vince, uh, in terms of kind of taking that next step for next year? First thing I'm doing sitting in that meeting room is probably just, uh, you know, to also, I guess, go on Keith's point is to, uh, Find a number one, right? More than just a number one wide receiver, someone outside of your Jamari Thrash that you feel comfortable going, going to to hit those deep balls and those deep plays and things like that. Uh, defensively, for me, it would be more of you know finding a way to bait the quarterback into making poor decisions on the back end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like a lot of our interceptions came either like man to man or you know or just a straight bad decision by the quarterback. If we can make them, you know, either pre-snap or post-snap, make something look like, you know, two or three or six or whatever they want to call it and, you know, actually run something different to make a play, uh, that's kind of what I would love to see. I don't know. I think with a guy like Quincy Riley, you can get really, really creative out there with kind of similar to Jair with how they move and just – how the smoothness of playing the position of corner and really understanding spacing of the game and spacing of wide receivers and how guys move and uh, just really understanding your opponent. So I, I, I that's that's kind of what I would see. Well, and 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 to jump in, sorry, sorry, Matt, I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You watch the NFL, and there's there's so many guys, especially on the defense side of the ball, in the, in the secondary that weren't necessarily like stars in, in college, weren't necessarily the guys you know about. 
I've I've really developed this kind of theory or this thought that it's really more about the the mental and the cerebral aspect of playing football. Can you do complex things? And I was watching um I want to say it was the Chiefs and Steve Spagnuolo, I think I think that's their defensive coordinator. He, he had this coverage where he essentially had his safeties like rotate in a circle into a two deep, even though it looked like it was a single high safety look. And I watched this happen and I was like, not every player can do that. Like physically and like the talent wise, you might be able to do some amazing things, but can you understand the ask what what he's asking you to do, but then also pull it off and do it in a way that is going to confuse the quarterback. And Louisville's brought in veteran guys. I mean, they're they're going to bring in some guys that are fourth, five, six year guys who can maybe go out there and you can start doing some complex things. And this is where a guy like Ron English, who's been around for a long time, might be able to say, you know what, let's throw some new wrinkles into the defense that these guys can have. They have the mental capacity to do where maybe some of these younger guys or guys who haven't played in different systems won't be able to do. I mean, you you know, I'm going to butcher his name. Wesley Matthews, the, the guy from Tennessee. Um, this is third school. This is third defense. You know, he might be able to pick up something like a guy that maybe, a, you know, that's maybe only played in one defensive system, you know, or two, or maybe not really played into, but has only, you know, been a part of two and hadn't been on the field in multiple systems. You know, those are the types of things where you hope that maybe they can do some new and different things because, you know, God, I, could, I can't, that was a, like a great point of, you can't just go out there and just say, hey, we're going to out-talent you. You yeah, have to go yeah. out there and do some things that other teams and quarterbacks especially don't know and can't see and maybe like, man, I have no clue what I'm looking at. And they're just out there going through the motions of what they're supposed to do, and you're taking that away with your defense. And, and it's all about ha- putting your defense in advantageous situations. And you've, it's, it's not always easy to do, but when you have veteran guys, that's that yeah, it starts there. And when you have that, you you can go out there and do some different things. And, and it's Ron, it's Coach English having the, you know, being comfortable with allowing these corners to make those type of decisions, you know, for him to sit back and say, okay, Quincy Riley, you know, he's an old guy. He's a vet. He understands how to – he understands this defense. You know, it should be back of, you know, Quincy Riley's hand that, you know, if it's a three-by-one and number three receiver motions in, there's a new number two and all this stuff that mm-hmm. is, you know, a freshman is sitting over here like, oh, my God, what's going on in my brain? I don't even – you know, I don't even know how to tie my shoes anymore. That's stuff that, like, Quincy Riley – it, that's second nature to him now. Yep. Now he can say, oh, I can sit back three more yards right here to make it look like this. Maybe I turn my hips in a little here, put my eyes on the quarterback, and then last second he flips it back. You know, all of a sudden he's a man, and he's, you know, doing his thing, and he's got the guy. But it's – I mean, it's going to be fun with these – with yeah. the vets. Absolutely, man. First of all, I'm going to ask – I'm going to ask Keith a question. Keith – what is your go-to or your favorite phrase in football? Because I know you love this phrase. Uh, my favorite phrase in football is this gets my piss Complimentary out. football, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. on both sides of the ball. Because yeah. we, we've, we've established that while they excelled in the running game, that was to a fault kind of because they had to rely on the running game because the passing game kind of wasn't going. And a big reason for the success on the defensive side of the ball, especially during the middle portion of the season, was because they were stuffing the run and the secondary was just 
making coverage extremely tight, whether it was a man or zone, and they were feeding off each other. The quarterback didn't have the time to get the ball out because he was facing pressure or he couldn't find someone open. If you have both of those working out for you, no matter what play call that the opposing offense is calling, it's going to end in most likely a negative play. Whereas on offense, if you can continuously keep opposing defenses on their toes, they're not going to know what's going to hit them. And if you have the amount of playmakers, the amount of talent that Louisville is going to have next season, you can take this kind of guessing game by the defense and turn that into massive plays uh, on offense, which is something that Louisville sorely needed at times. So on both offensively and defensively, if I'm a coach, I'm going in there and, I'm, and my main message is like, guys, you got to feed off each other. You got to help. You've got to, this is going to sound like coach speak, but like play for the guy <laughs> next to you. That's the most coach speak thing I've ever said. But Matt's getting nothing like this. Yeah, I know. So, like, so like one thing that I, I think we talked about how Louisville maybe seemed kind of better than they were when he hit the pit game and things kind of came back to earth. One of the, I can't, I don't know the stat on the top of my head, but at a point in the season, I think they were still 95 or 100% on turning turnovers into points. And I want to say it was maybe six games in the season before they had a turnover by the defense that didn't turn into a touchdown on offense. And they were number one in the country for a while. That is the type of thing that maybe masks some some issues you have where, you know, you're getting extra possessions. It's no different than basketball. Extra possessions matter. And when your extra possessions turn into touchdowns and not field goals and not just giving the ball right back, you know, that is a huge difference from Jeff Brom to where we saw with Scott Siderfield where they would get those turnovers and you weren't always guaranteed to turn those into points. And sometimes because those turnovers are coming in the red zone, you know, you would get them you know, late, and you might be able to at least keep them out of the end zone, but you're not turning on the points. Where this year we saw they were scoring after turnovers, after turnovers nonstop, and then once that kind of slowed down, things kind of fell back down to earth a little bit. So, you know, complimentary football is a huge factor in what they were able to do this year. And to to Matt's point, you've got to be able to do that not only on the offensive defensive side, you got to do that pass run uh, as well, and pass rush versus coverage and I think they, to you know, I don't want to talk. Not trying to focus on next year, but with what they have coming in, they have everything you kind of need to really advance things on both sides of the ball. Um, from what we've seen on paper, you know, to your point, but it's hard not to get a little excited, right? Complimentary football. That's like excited. nerd talk. We just yeah. line the ball up. And we play 11 <laughs> on 11, hat on a hat, and we just let it ride. <laughs> the good old man. days, man. The good old days. Well, hey, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but as you bring in guys like Penny Boone and you have uh, some heavier backs, man, that power, I-form football. Dwayne uh, Martin leading the way. Yeah. Hey, Come man, look, now. well. Well, look, I got to say, we went this whole episode without even acknowledging the bruiser that was Dwayne Martin. I want, if I was a videographer, I would go back and I would just cut a reel of Dwayne Martin just blowing dudes up on that lead block as an iPhone blocker. It was impressive he, all season long. He is long, that man. gif of the juggernaut running through the wall. Like that's Dwayne Martin going to lead block on somebody. <laughs> Incredible, man. Well, hey. That is going to wrap us up here for part one of our 2023 season in review. We've got a lot more as we go along over the next couple of weeks. We'll be joined by uh, even more guests, including some former players, uh, some coaches, 
some local media. Uh, so there's a lot to to stick around for. We'll dive into offense and defense and hear really a, a continued story as to what happened throughout the year uh, and how Louisville ended up with the record it did with some of the highs and lows that it did. Uh, but until next time, we can't thank you all enough for tuning in. Subscribe anywhere that you get your shows from. Be sure to follow Keith Wynn on Twitter. Support his work at Card Chronicle. I know if you're listening to this show, you probably already do that. So you're probably like, well, I should probably subscribe to your show since I already follow Keith. <laughs> <laughs> so do both of those. We can't thank you all enough for tuning in, Keith, man. <laughs> I'm waving at you through the window. They're scrolling through the episode. It's like, <laughs> how many of these are on? Oh, he's on. Oh, I, can, I can catch this on Twitter. Oh, man, that's great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, go cards. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.